0: I may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So Heather and I just finished uh, recently watching through the Netflix show The Crown, the first four seasons anyway, uh, which, for those of y'all that don't know, dramatizes the life of uh, the current Queen Elizabeth and her family. Now, many folks are tuning in, have tuned in, and really like this show because of that soap opera quality that is the British royal family. (laughs) Um, Some of that is very much in the news from time to time these days, too. But my favorite parts were more uh, the coronation of the queen, the various royal weddings, the great banquets, and all of that sort of thing that comes with royalty. I really enjoy the pageantry, the ceremony, and the fanciness of it all. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why I'm attracted to the uh, smells and bells of high church Anglicanism. (laughs) I told the folks at the first service we are not going to be having um, kind of a strum and hum service at All Saints anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) At any rate, I cannot imagine being invited to such a grand occasion and turning it down. Yet that's the very thing that we see happening in today's parable in our gospel reading. People are invited to a grand banquet and make pathetic excuses. The host then invites those who would be least expected to come to such a feast So that his house will be full. So let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 14, beginning at the 19th verse, Luke 14, 19. Um, You can find this on page 192 in your prayer book or page 821 in your Bibles, in your pew Bibles. I'm sorry, Luke 14, 16. Let's try that. 14, 16. He said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he he sent his servant to say to those who were invited, come, for everything is now ready. So this is the third parable we have in Luke chapter 14 about some sort of feast. And in fact, the setting for these parables is our Lord at a Sabbath dinner hosted by one of the rulers of the Pharisees, one of the big wigs of uh, the religious culture of his day, the religious circles. So first we have a lesson that he gives about not letting one's piety rob you of your mercy. Don't ignore the way you're supposed to treat people just for religious. Don't make it religious excuses is what he says. And then he follows this by two lessons on humility in the face of expectations to jockey for social position. Be humble. Don't fight for your place. You know, it's better to be raised up than to uh, um, be, be put down. (laughs) And then one of the dinner guests proclaims blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, so it could be that this guest sensed that our Lord is talking about that great eschatological banquet, the marriage supper of the lamb in the world to come. He might've kind of got the point of what Jesus was driving at. Or maybe um, in light of these parables, there's a bit of uh, an awkward silence, and he's just kind of filling it in with a a common statement of the day, right? (laughs) The common aphorism. But either way, what this guest does is that he sets up our Lord Jesus for the third parable that is our gospel reading today. And the guest's proclamation is true. Those who will join in the marriage supper of the Lamb are blessed indeed. But Jesus tells them that his his wedding guests may not be those who are expected. Let's continue on. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. So here we see how pathetic the excuses made by these guests are. And in fact, our Lord says, the way it is in our prayer book, that they did this all with one consent. Or as the ESV put it, they all alike began to make cons- excuse. These folks seem to have conspired to snub the host and to snub the feast. Who buys real estate without inspecting it? Even in today's hot market where people are buying kind of sight unseen, it's not really sight unseen. They all got photos and MLS listings and that sort of thing. <laughs> Nobody buys real estate without having seen it. Who buys farm animals sight unseen? I, I asked Happen. And and first, first service. Would you ever buy a horse without looking at it? No, of course not. Who would not put his new wife as the plus one for such a grand celebration? And in fact, as his fiancee, she was probably already his plus one, right? The master of the feast's anger at his guests is quite understandable here. Let's let's continue on uh, halfway through verse twenty one. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So as is common in our Lord's parables, we have this great reversal. Rather than inviting the other landowners and noblemen to the feast, the host invites the lowly and outcasts of the city. It would be as if the guests to the royal wedding were the working poor and homeless in London, rather than the lords and bishops and celebrities. Now the church fathers, and in particular uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria and St. Ambrose, they explain this parable as an allegory of how the gospel went forth in the first century during our Lord's time and then during the time of the apostles after our Lord had died and rose again. So the host, the fathers say, is, represents God the Father who is calling people into the kingdom. The servant then is the Lord Jesus who was sent by the Father To call God's people to their long expected redemption. And by extension, the servant is also the apostles and their successors who have been charged with continuing Christ's mission through the act of evangelization, telling the good news of Jesus. The original guests then are the leaders of Israel who were, have, they were supposed to have maintained the faith for the people and had been teaching the people to follow God, to follow his word, to look for the coming Messiah, just as their fathers, the patriarchs and prophets, had done back in the Old Testament. And sadly, these leaders of Israel in Jesus' day, they reject the Lord and they failed to secede, they failed to see the fulfillment of all God's promises that were in His Son. and instead they were blinded by their own power, their own prestige, their own positions. They were more interested in their position in being the leaders of Israel than in looking for God's promises. Then uh, the poor, maimed, halt and blind, as our, our prayer book puts it um, They were the regular folk of Israel who often followed Jesus despite the the leader's objections. We see that all throughout the Gospels, right? And then those outside the city in the highways and hedges are the Gentiles whom the apostles would bring into the kingdom of God through their preaching after the Lord's ascension. So for all of those who are invited, the message is the same. The Lord Jesus has come to live, die, and rise again for sinners like me and you in fulfillment of what God had said would happen. And he's done so because he loves us, because God loves us. He invites us then to become his followers and even his co-heirs to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit into the people we were meant to be, people who are free from sin and death, And united with God. And this interpretation given by the fathers, it does indeed fit with what we see in the rest of St. Luke's gospel and in the sequel to his gospel, the book of Acts. Kind of parenthetically, if you've never done this, sometime read Luke and Acts back to back rather than reading the gospel of John in between when you're going through the scriptures, because that's how St. Luke meant it to be. Um, The gospel is part one. Acts is part two. It's really one big story in two books. So this interpretation from the fathers is what we see in the rest of the gospel and in the book of Acts. But it also has implications for the church today. This isn't just telling the story of what happened. This tells the story of how things are today. So like the Pharisees, the priests, and the scribes of Jesus' day, we the church have been entrusted with the word of God and care for God's people. Like the Pharisees, we sit in Moses' seat and have the God-given authority and responsibility to take care of this glorious heritage with which the Lord has entrusted us. So may we never be so distracted by running the church that we fail to pass on the gospel. May we never lose sight that everything we do is for the Lord Jesus and is about the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Everything we do as a parish, a diocese, a province, and a global church is to be focused on Jesus. As St. James tells us in uh, the third chapter, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks in Sunday school, uh, we should be wa- wary of our responsibility as pastors and teachers because God is going to hold us to a greater standard. So if you have any spiritual authority, whether it's as a clergyman, um, a vestry member, a catechist, a teacher, a godparent, a parent, a chorister, an usher, whatever it might be. Remember to keep Christ at the center of your work. We must pass on the word of God. We must bring Jesus to those under our charge. Never let your position in ministry your duties in ministry blind you to the glories of being an ambassador for the kingdom because that's what you are. Never lose sight of your first priority, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, this parable also has a profound warning about how easy it is to be distracted by the world and the flesh. This parable has a profound warning about the danger of making excuses before the Lord. So the first two commandments in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are, Thou shalt have none other gods but me, And thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor worship them. And indeed, the whole first table of the law can be summed up by the greatest commandment that we recited today. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Our catechism talks about it this way. It says, this is our duty we have towards God. And it says, my duty towards God is to believe in him. To fear him and to love him with all my heart, with all my mind, and with all my soul, and with all my strength. To worship him, to give him thanks, to put my whole trust in him, to call upon him, to honor his holy name and his word, and to serve him truly all the days of my life. So anything that comes between you and your duty towards God is idolatry, and that's the root of all sin. Now, this might sound easy in the abstract, right? None of us have an Asherah pole in our backyard. None of us have an altar to Baal. Um, I don't think even any of us here have a Buddha statue in our houses. I hope not. (laughs) If so, we probably need to talk, y'all. But still, how often do the cares of the world distract us from fulfilling our duty to God? How easy is it for work, family, friends, and these days especially politics, to come before our calling and our identity as followers of Christ and subjects of his kingdom. How easy is it for us to say, I know it would be wrong, but then we fill in the blank. One of my favorite characters in literature, he tells his apprentice at one point that it's easy to know when you're being tempted to uh, betray your, your principles. He tells her this, I start sentences with phrases like, I would never ever do this, but, or I know this is wrong, but, it's the but that tips you off. <laughs> now, of course, these aren't always so black and white. They're not always so clear cut, right? After all, the excuses that the guests, the guests give here, they're not evil things in and of themselves, no, they're not, being, they're not being tempted to go out and, and explicitly violate God's word here. Family, jobs, home life, these things are good. They're gifts from God. But the problem is often one of focus or priority. We put our priority on the gift rather than on the giver. The German reformer Erasmus Sarcerius he writes this. This is a different Erasmus than you probably heard about in school. Um, Sarserius writes this. Jesus does not condemn the lawful and ordinary way of living, such as buying possessions or farms, running a business, getting married, and so on, but rather he condemns human impiety by which people make themselves captive to these kinds of lives and neglect the happiness of the heavenly banquet. The farmers say, we have to work. We don't have the leisure time to listen very often to the preaching of the gospel. The merchants say, we have to travel by sea or land so that we may pursue our business. The newly married men say, we must work hard to provide for our household to get wealth, both for our future children and also for our old age. We don't have much leisure to listen to the preaching of the gospel. What they are saying is, I would rather die on earth then enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is nothing but wicked contempt for the word of God and the kingdom of heaven and is worthy to be punished with everlasting fire. Those are harsh words, very harsh words, but they're really no harsher than what our Lord said at the conclusion of the parable. I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. As the reformer pointed out, It's easy for ourselves, it's easy for us to make ourselves captive to the cares of life, as good as those cares may be. We transform them from the good gifts from God into becoming the thorns and thistles that choke out the seed of the gospel from the soil of our heart. But remember, Christian, that Christ has set you free. Not from your duties to your families or jobs or fellow men. After all, the second greatest commandment is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. (laughs) But the Lord has set you free to place these duties to your neighbor secondary to your duty as God. To have your priorities straight. He set you free to become children of God, brethren of Christ, partakers of the blessed world to come. Now, sometimes prioritizing the kingdom of God takes sacrifice in the here and now. Sometimes it means saying no to something you really, really want. It can be hard sometimes. But remember that that God has given you the Holy Spirit to empower your walk with Christ. He's made you a co-heir of the kingdom. He's promised to take care of you both in this life and in the life to come. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That really can kind of sum up everything we're going to be talking about in the next 20-something weeks in Trinity time. (laughs) And here's the thing, by the Lord's grace, by the power of the gospel. As you seek first the kingdom, that same invitation that brought you in is then going out to your family, to your friends, to to your co-workers, and all whom you love. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.